Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Today you are in for a real treat. I am joined by jazz pianist, educator, and entrepreneur, Josh Walsh. Josh is an accomplished pianist, having studied classical piano at the University of Toledo and Cleveland State University and Cleveland Institute of Music. In 2001, Josh founded the Refinery, an e-commerce consultancy. Being CEO of that company was his primary career until 2021, when, check this out, Josh took a huge leap of faith, sold his share of the business, and returned to music full-time with the launching of a site dedicated solely to jazz education called jazzlibrary.com, and that's jazz hyphen library.com. Both audio and video formats are available for this podcast episode. And of course, you can listen to the audio version of the episode through any of the popular podcast directories, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and many, many others, or directly on the Jazz Piano Skills podcast website, where you can also Watch the video of the show as well, which I strongly recommend doing. Now, it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, Mr. Josh Walsh. Josh Walsh, my <laughs> up, man? old friend, man. How are you? Dude, it's so good to see your face. Well, likewise. You know, I've been uh, threatening you now for some time to have you on Jazz Piano Skills, and I well, finally uh, I finally made my threat come true, and here you are, man. <laughs> I'm honored to be here, man. Thank you. Y- yeah. You know, uh, I'm thrilled because your story, uh, first of all, your passion for jazz uh, and jazz education is unsurpassed by anyone, but your story um, is fascinating. And I've been wanting to get you on Jazz Piano Skills for you to share your story with the Jazz Piano Skills listeners, because I know it is going to have a profound impact on many of them. So you know what? We're going to jump in because I try to keep I try to keep each podcast episode to around an hour, and man, we got so much to talk about that we're going to be we're just going to be rocking it for an hour to get through everything. So. Let's, I'm just going to turn the microphone over to you right now and kind of just share your story with the Jazz Piano Skills listeners, your childhood, how you got into music, and wh- how it's led you to where you are today. So, my friend, the mic is all yours. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So I started playing piano at a really young age, and, and without a whole lot of formal training, I came home from church one day and banged around at the piano when I was like three years old, just trying to figure out the hymns and stuff like that. And mom and dad were like, well, we got to get this kid a teacher, right? And uh, nobody wanted to take a teacher for the reasons that I now understand, because I don't want to teach three-year-olds either. (laughs) So I, I, you know, fast forward through like middle school and all this stuff, I really got into boogie woogie and ragtime and all the the fun stuff that, that the girls loved, right? Right, right. <laughs> and um, but I got into really serious, uh, you know, um, highfalutin music too. Like really, like into classical music, and was really right. intrigued by the virtuosity of like Vladimir Horowitz and these other players who just right. have an incredible, incredible technique. Right. So when I went right. to school, I knew I wanted to make my living in music. So I went to music school in Cleveland. I went to um, I went to two schools. I went to University of Toledo first, and then switched to Cleveland State because I could study at the conservatory. Right. And I studied classical uh, for four years, and my my playing ability really went through the roof, as you would expect from you know this from your right. Hi- proud time at University of North Texas, which you uh, right. talk about all the time. Right. Um, when you sit in a practice room for six hours a day, you get pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, right. yes, you do. Right. So my technique really oh. blossomed, but I when I got to the end of music, I was like, what am I going to do as a career with this thing now? Like, do I want to be a performer and travel the world like um, Glenn Gould did, playing the Goldberg Variations over and over and over for the rest of my life? I was like, no, I like I want more variety in my life than that. So um, I ended up realizing that the way you make a career is to be a music teacher. And I went to be a high school or middle school band director. And I did that literally for two days before I quit. I bought out of my contract. I left and I I never went back. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it wasn't because I didn't have a passion for music education. And clearly, I do. But I hated the public school system and the way that it taught and the way I assessed. And also, oh my gosh, the students right. in the band were not like me in band, right? Like they right. they were either here because they had already taken their art class and they didn't want another PE credit. So you know, I'll pick up the saxophone. They didn't care at all, right? And right. so I be, I just didn't enjoy that. So when I left music school and decided I didn't want to be a teacher. I had this other business going on the side. It's kind of a hobby out of my dorm room. And I went and did that full time. And I did that for 20 years. And I kept playing wow. piano every day because that's what I loved. Um, but it became like a, a passion project, not a career for me at that point. Right. Right. You know, it's it's funny that you bring up the uh, high school, uh, you know, middle school or high school band director, uh, you know, job. Uh, unfortunately, man, uh, that is really uh, the, the choice that so many musicians are are met with. Uh, that you know, you get go get a degree in music, and really your only options are, well, go to teach at a you know grade school, public you know junior high, high school, or even college for that matter, um, or or you know, try your hand at performing full-time. And if you're going to try your hand at performing full-time, then why the heck did you go to college to to begin with? You might as well have just gone study with some great players and and pursue it that way, to be quite honest with you. So, you you know, it's funny that you bring that up because when I was uh, at the University of North Texas, um, they, uh, to get your doctorate degree at the University of North Texas at that time, now it may, may have changed, but at that time, you had to have three years of teaching experience, and I said, I said, well, no problem. I got, I got three years of teaching experience. But they said, oh, well, oh no, not studio teaching, not private teaching. You have to have classroom teaching, like junior high school, high school teaching. And I can remember saying, look, I'll do anything that you want me to do. I will clean the campus on the weekends. I will do anything, but do not make me be a band director. <laughs> and. Um, and uh, but, you know, and it's not it's not a dig against band directors because, you know what, that's just a different groove. And I'm so thankful we have really passionate band directors, 100 percent directors. And, right. I am. It's just a whole different thing. And and it's kind of like what I tell the faculty here at the Dallas School of Music is that, you know, the faculty that work out here are studio teachers. That's a very different thing than a classroom teacher. It's a very different animal. And uh, so. With your passion for performing, your passion for the study of jazz, I could see why. Uh, I, you know, I'm surprised you last two days, man. I thought you would. I thought it would be more like two hours. You know, I. It was a tough decision for me because, the music program in my high school was why I had the passion for music, even still that I do now. It was really influential on me. But I went in kind of naively thinking that the classrooms are full of people like me, and right, and, and they just right. weren't. Not, not, right. Uh, So I had an interesting epiphany, though, while I was in music school, because, again, I was studying classically at the conservatory at Cleveland Institute. And I got hired as a organist at a black church. (laughs) And I said, sure, no problem. I can pull up the hymnal and play hymns all day. (laughs) That's fine. and so yeah, I showed so, up on my yeah. first Sunday, and the the opening hymn was "This Little Light of Mine." And I grew up, by the way, ortho, I grew up um, Protestant in the Methodist Church. And "This Little Light of mm-hmm. Mine" was like a very strict, like this little light of mine. It was not. It was a different melody and everything than you would think of as the traditional hymn. But that was what I knew. So I sat down at this at this piano at this black church and played it this way, and nobody sang. Nobody. And it was this little church, maybe like fifty people. <laughs> And I'm they're thinking, going, they're going like, what the heck? What I'm thinking, oh, maybe I, I didn't do the intro the way they're used to. And so, like, I cut, I, you know, asked for some graciousness, and I started again. And again, nobody sang. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> and this, this old guy in the front row, he must have been 85 years old, said, who hired the white boy? <laughs> this is the and so, no, I'm, I, I know it's so oh funny, but gosh. this is really influential to me. They, um, so this guy, this old guy in the front row, just started clapping and started singing it the way that he knew it. And the congregation came in, and they went through the first two verses a cappella. And you know, then I picked it up. I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. And then I went with it for a while. And at that point, I was like, what is – like, I went online and found all of this, um, these gospel players. And um, there's a DVD set by oh – do you remember this guy, Happy Trom? He had this um, uh, set of instructional music 
uh, sets, mostly for guitar players. Um, okay. I can't think the name of it. Boy, that's embarrassing. It was a really big deal. And he had this lady, Ethel Caffey Austin, who was this you know um, pianist at a gospel church, and boy, could she play. And um, I realized at that point that she was not playing from the same theory book that I had learned. Right. Right? It's right. like she didn't have right. words to describe the movements right. that she was doing and the voicings that she was right. playing and all this stuff. I watched this instructional DVD and kind of mimicked her. Um, right. And, yeah, it was really uh, Wow, that's, you know, that's, that's some guts right there, man, w- walking in to play gospel when you've never played gospel. That's some, that's some you know, that's some courage there. Well, I didn't, it was no courage because I was naive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fell on my yeah. I fell on my face. Um, yeah, it oh wasn't courageous, gosh. but I learned I learned a lot just from like this one lady. Just you know, you can alternate the one to the four chord when you're playing the gospel stuff to create some movement yeah. and groove. And she did this thing, um, and I was like, "What is that?" And I'd never heard this sound before. Where did this come from? And I broke it down. I you know slowed the video down, went frame by frame, and I was like, "Wait, this this scale has eight notes in it." What? Where do the eight note scales come from? My my classical background didn't teach me octatonic or anything, right? Correct. Right, and I was like, and right. what key is this in? Like, there's a B flat and a D flat and an E flat and an F sharp, and I'm like, what is this? And of course, that's the it's the diminished scale, right? And so I was like, well, where does right. this? How do we use it? How do we apply it? And this actually kind of led to uh. something that was really important to me in learning to play jazz, which is that, uh, like. All the books and materials, not all, but a lot of them are really glorifying the complexity of jazz and jazz theory, right? Like, they're these big, thick books. And I love these books. The Jazz Theory book by Mark Levine is a great book. But if you try to learn jazz by starting on page one and working through the end, you're in for a bad time. Because all theory is going to do is describe to you what you already are playing or what you're already hearing. It's not going to give you an instruction rule book for how to play. Right. Yeah, yeah, this this is... let's, Let's talk about this for a little bit. You you'd mentioned that... You discovered one of the epiphanies that you had was that, that classical is white collar and jazz is from the streets. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that statement. Yeah. Um, so I came from a white collar family. My dad was an executive at a big, big, big company. Mm-hmm. And I was learned that you break everything down, you codify it, you systematize it, you create standard operating pr- procedures. And so the way that I was approaching music from a classical standpoint was you pull the, the music up in front, you go two measures at a time, you master those, and you build up a technique which is mostly uh, like like muscular, right? So it's like literally right. your technical right. uh, technique for how you play. And then right. you learn some musical skills for how to interpret things and, and those kind of things. But when you um, when I think about jazz... Like, not, all that goes away. If you start by thinking, oh, I'm going to play the standard, and I'm going to memorize it, and I'm going to learn how I play the head of the tune versus the solo of the tune, and you memorize your, your, your patterns and all this stuff, you lose the soul of it, which is the spontaneity and the, um, the, create, right. the composition on demand that, what it, that is jazz. And what I found is it's very, it's not like a linear process where you first you learn to play classical, and then all of a sudden you start to introduce improvisation. It's like you have to go all the way back to the beginning to some sense in order to think about improvisation as a, as a first-party uh, foundational idea. Right. Well, you cannot, um, you certainly cannot approach playing jazz like you would approach playing classical music. That, that is absolutely 100% true. And it's, it, the reason I bring up your quote, you know, that classical is white collar and jazz is from the street. I, I always tell students that, you know, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you how to play jazz from a street perspective. And then I'll explain it from a, from a academic perspective. Now, the funny thing is the two say the exact same thing, but they come at it from very different directions. And I always use like an example of, um, you know, uh, uh, modes. I always use modes as an an example because, you know, beginning jazz students always love to get wrapped around these modes, like modes are somehow the secret to uh, playing playing jazz. And all modes are, to your point earlier, is that it's theory. It's explaining where sounds come from. It validates sound, right? So, you know, a street musician, a street jazzer would play, if you said to them, play, um, hey, we, uh, play the... Uh, uh, C dominant, flat nine, flat 13 sound. They would play, the street musician would play that sound. They'd start with a C dominant scale, they'd flat the nine, and they flat the 13th. How hard is that? 
But the academic or the classical side would say, well, wait a minute, whoa, not so fast. That's, you know, that's the fifth mode of the harmonic minor scales, right? So if it's C flat, C7 flat 9 flat 13, you have to start that F harmonic minor scale starting on the, on the C and play it all the way through, and then you'll have your flat 9, you'll have your flat 13. And, of course, the street jazz musician would go, seriously? That's how you think of that's yeah. how you think about that. If that's how you think about it, no wonder you play like you play because that's impossible. I, right? If you go back to history, I don't think Art Tatum was thinking about that when he was, you know, sitting at a piano playing T for two. It was just in him. I would say, as a more modern player, you can extract those ideas and recognize what they are, practice those as a technical exercise. But you don't think about it when you're creating or when you're performing. It just comes out of you. That's, well, that's ex- well, that's exactly right. You know, it's sound, right? So it's you, you learn. That's what I've always said. You know, jazz is the study of shapes and the study of sounds. It's shapes and sounds that jazz musicians master. They don't ma- the theory. The theory is just an academic explanation of the shapes and sounds that the jazz musicians play. I have a you friend know. who I went to music school with who's a very extremely talented classical musician and wanted to learn more about improvisation. So he taught himself the blues scale. And I was like, well, cool, let's jam out. So I went through 12-bar blues. We did this just didn't see. Um, here, let me throw on. I'll show you exactly what I mean by white collar versus black collar. This will demonstrate it. Yeah, yeah, so, this is great. So if I play uh, a C blues, you would think 12-bar blues, just a typical three-chord three chord formula. C, F. But when I played it with him, I played more of a bebop blues because that's what I like to play. Right. Where I had the fast right. four. Right. Right. And he kept up with me okay. He was Then I put a diminished in. Uh-huh. With a secondary dominant. And he freaked out. He goes, you're breaking the rules, man. He says, you can't play an A7 in the key of C. Those, that's C sharp. That's not in the blues scale. That's not going to clash. It's right. not going to work. And I was like, brother, if you're thinking about like not breaking the rules, you're still thinking like a classical perspective because we play from a different set of rules. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned, I want to go back to, uh, you mentioned earlier that another epiphany that you had in your studying of jazz and your pursuit of jazz was that uh, the intentional that jazz educational materials and what you perceived as the intentional pursuit of complexity I love this right the intentional pursuit of complexity can you talk talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that well there's something enjoyable about the endless exploration and nuance of jazz, right? That there's right. always something new to learn, right. always something new to explore, always some new alteration to play with, or some new sound you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're in the jazz community and a lot of the books and the teaching materials love to like build up a library of all these cool things that somebody has learned over time. And right. instead you, right. you fail to realize just how simple the fundamentals are because you've got lost in the complexity. And what happens is That's if you're, a lot of the people that I work with are classical people who are trying to transition to play jazz. And they're in this mentality of, well, when do I finish learning this song? Like, when do I go right. from starting Autumn Leaves and then when I can perform it? I'm like, well, you're never going to be done learning Autumn Leaves. You're always going to learn new techniques. Let's start here. Let's start with three-note voicings and play it. Right? And you can, pr- right. by the way, once you learn three-note voicings right. with Autumn Leaves, you can play it. Like, you can go out and perform it right. and, and people will enjoy right. it and all right. that stuff. But you can put endless amounts of complexity on top of it. And I think what I mean what I mean when I talk about glorifying the complexity is that we skip way too far ahead in the pedagogical technique of teaching somebody how to play jazz that we rush through all the fundamentals and it creates a bad an, it creates an unrealistic expectation for how much work goes into learning the fundamentals. If you think you can breeze through knowing your rootless voicings in a couple days so that you can move on to playing all these fancy scales, I mean it took me months to know my rootless voicings to the point where I could actually play them. And so I think right. that it's kind of, um, we have to be careful to recognize who the audience is that we're talking to and make sure that we're talking at the right level. Actually, right. the reason well, I know your podcast is because you, from the very beginning, you've taken a, a, almost a sequential approach to adding new techniques and trying things and new voicings and your contemporary fourth voicings versus your traditional three-note voicings. Like that, I appreciate that so much. 
Right. Well, I, thank you. You know, I um, what what I try to do through the podcast and with uh, the jazz piano skills listeners, as well as with the students that I teach here at the Dallas School of Music, I, I bring this up all the time. Right. That you know your, your physical development begins and, and hinges on on your conceptual understanding, and that if your conceptual understanding of jazz is skewed in any way, shape, or form, or complicated, or confusing, or foggy, then it's going to be skewed and complicated and foggy in your hands as well. And and so if you're if you're thinking about this is why I'm always trying to avoid this unnecessary pursuit of this intentional pursuit of uh, a complexity by actually simplifying, really simplifying it. And I talk all the time about look, we have, you know, um, we have. Uh, two types of melodic motion in music. We have scale motion, we have arpeggio motion. It can go one of two directions, ascending and descending. I'm always trying to place things in, in a very simplistic framework because it begins that way. Jazz players begin thinking that's how they think. They don't try to complicate. They try to simplify what they do. Yeah, exactly. And, and our YouTube generation is making this worse. I mean, I love a jazz YouTube video as much yes. as the next guy. They're fun. But you can sit in one afternoon and watch like seven five-minute videos that all have wild techniques that you want to sit down and practice. And all of those are going to take you weeks of work to work on. And that's fine. Pick something right. that's at your level, right. learn it, add it to your, your bag of tricks, and move on to the next one. There's this ADD kind of always moving on to the next thing. I, I had a, One of my students did exactly this. He came to me and said, look, I learned my altered scale. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like, that's so useful. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> right? And he was like, I don't know. I was like, well, why don't you play me a C altered scale? And he right away played right through it. And I said, okay, great. Play me a D flat melodic minor scale. And he goes, oh, I, D flat, that's a tough key. I don't know my D flat melodic minor scale. And I was like, dude, like, where do you think the altered scale comes from? <laughs> you just played it. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, that's what I mean. Like, you, you've, you've rushed ahead to be able to play some technique, but you haven't taken the time to understand why it exists or how it works and therefore you'll never be able to use it compositionally it'll just be a little trick that you can pull out of your bag to throw over a g7 chord sometime well yeah and you know and i think i think uh, we all kind of get sucked into that trap at some time during our development where we think that the, the um the, the bigger the academic label or the fancier the academic la label, the, the cooler the technique must be, right? So, you know, polychords, polychords, that must be some really cool stuff there, right? Altered dominant scales, that must be some really cool stuff right there, right? Uh, pentatonics, that might, that, that sounds really cool. I think I need to practice that, those pentatonics, right? Or, or you know, you, the list goes on and on and on, chordal voicings. But the reality of it is, the reality of it is, if someone would just sit down and play some really fundamental, they could be just some fundamental block chords with a nice melody, and you play it with the right articulation and feel, which this is what jazz is. It's an articulation and feel. And if you play those simple little chords with a simple little melody with the correct art articulation and feel, guess what you're playing? You're playing jazz. And guess what everybody's going to enjoy? You're playing. Right. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to have all this complexity that we're always in pursuit of all the time. Well, the, the complexity is the nature of time and your own investment Correct. in your own playing. Right. You have to start somewhere because, again, right. I, my student could play his altered scale in all 12 keys, but I don't think he could play a blues and put it in there. And right. um, and that's really sad to me. It's like you've come at this the wrong side. You started with the flashy show offy parts of it, but you haven't built the foundation to which to apply it. Right. Right. So talk a little bit, you know, you, you have left your 20 year, you've left your 20 year business that you've created, that you built from the ground up. You've sold that company. Now you're back into jazz and jazz education. And you have this phenomenal site that you've launched called jazzlibrary.com, correct? That's right. So can you talk a little bit, I, I know the jazz Piano Skills listeners would love to know about this site that you have created and the resources and materials that are available for them to tap into to help them with their jazz journey. So talk a little bit about this, this venture now. Yeah, sure. So I started it actually a few years ago. The company that I ran was a digital marketing company. We were blessed to work with some really uh, big names in that space. And I learned a lot about digital marketing through that. And I wanted to figure out how to apply 
those techniques that I learned in my marketing career into the music side of things. Because frankly, the people who are the best teachers online, you amongst them, are not the best marketers. They don't have the best online tools, websites, whatever. They have great content, fantastic content. But the, but the technology behind the scenes is really lacking. And what I've found is that if you go, I work with a local, um, a local community college jazz program here in town. And they still play out of Jamie Abersold books written in the 70s. And again, we have the technology of YouTube and these YouTube personalities that are producing some great content and stuff. But right. where is the 2021 uh, version of Jamie Abersold? It doesn't really exist, right? It's right. There's, Where's the app YouTube generation of that real codified program, not just like the quick tips that go here and there? And don't get me wrong. There are people that have online courses that do great. I love your program. Like That's not a knock on any of those people. But I thought I had something right, interesting right. to add to that space. So while I was running the other company, I created this site called Jazz Library, which was an experiment to see if this would um, be interesting to people or not. And I started using my SEO content writing techniques to write articles to see if I could rank and compete with the big guys. And sure enough, I'm doing quite well with it. And uh, so it's allow- awesome. it's really opening the door for me to do this full time. So I, as you indicated, I sold my interest in the company after 20 years and retired from that. Um, and I'm now doing this full time. And I'm one of the main goals I have with this is actually not just to, to talk to a musician who's a wants to learn how to play because there's lots of like overhead camera you know jazz instructional right. videos on the internet right now but it's to build an appreciation right. for jazz for people who just want to listen to it and want to know more about what was Chick Corea thinking in this moment while he was improvising this um, but also right. maybe the bigger mission than this is to inspire that idea of improvisation as a life skill into kids who are uh, younger and still developing so th- the reason I'm working with the jazz programs in the community colleges and the high schools is because even if you don't go on to be a, a musician in your career, let's say you go be a salesperson, being able to think on your feet and compose and improvise as a life skill is so important to you. And that was something I didn't have mm-hmm. when I started the company. Um, I really mm-hmm. found the parallels between my my jazz career and the, the mental skills that I developed as a human being from learning how to improvise paid off in other areas of my life too. So I want to give someone just the freedom to create and improvise on the fly, even if it's not something they ever want to be, become Oscar Peterson or something. Right, right. It's fantastic. So when you go to Jazz Library, how is the site structured and set up? What what how, what, what, are, what are some of the materials that are there for folks to, to utilize? So there's kind of three areas. And because I'm, by the way, I sold the company two months ago. So a lot of this is, is in works and still coming. <laughs> The, right. The, right. Most of the content that's on there now are really deep dives into uh, instructional content. Okay. Uh, and, and they're they're aimed for who my students are, which are classical players that are trying to learn how to get into jazz for the first time. Okay. So it's on how do voicings work at a fundamental level? How do they sound? How do you play them? How do you practice them? How do you put them through the, their paces and keys? How do you then translate those into tunes? How do you perform with those techniques? And these are really deep dive articles on, on that stuff. The YouTube channel is going to be focusing more on the jazz appreciation stuff. So it will be, you know, pulling out two to four measures of an interesting solo and just talking about what makes it interesting and and those things from a music theory perspective, but not from the perspective of learning how to play and perform it. For the really serious um, people that want to pay me some money to do this, I'm doing live workshops once a week that are free to everybody. And those live workshops go into an archive, and you can always watch the latest one for free. And then you'll, in the future, you'll be able to pay to watch the full archive, uh, to access the oh, full archives of everything that I have. Well, that's fantastic, man! I need to check out. I need to check that out, man. I need, how do I get signed up for that? Just I'll, I'll your, give you one, but it's uh, oh, wow. it's still it's still coming, right? So there's a lot of things that are still in motion okay. and, and half baked and all that stuff. But thank you. No, I would love would love to share it with you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. So, okay, so y- you teach, you have, uh, you know, there a studio where you're working with, as you mentioned, classical pianists, you know, people that have played for a while, you know, and have a, a, achieved a certain level of proficiency on the instrument and they're playing class- classical literature. And now they're, you know, got the jazz bug and they're wanting to learn how to play some jazz. So talk a little bit about, how you help somebody get start to navigate the jazz waters here and and start get started in the jazz in the jazz world what what do you do i have a very different approach to teaching from just than i've seen anybody else do and i can thank the pandemic for okay. this um, okay because i don't sit down with people one on one side by side for 30 minutes every two weeks or something like that instead okay. we trade three to five minute videos over text messages or we use an app called Marco Polo. 
So it's like texting, but with videos. Right. And so they set it up next right. to their piano. They play something. They send it back to me. And then we can have an ongoing conversation all the time about how things are playing. We can trade a three-minute video. I'll send back someone back and yada, yada, yada. And that's because a lot of these people are busy adults who have life and are difficult to actually come in for lessons right. and find time to practice right. and all that stuff. Right. And what I found from that is it allows us to work better in bite-sized pieces instead of like okay. go work on this big thing for the next month and we'll come back next month and we'll see how you're doing it allows us to really nitpick on how do you finger the pentatonic scale in this particular key and how do we work through that and how do i right. apply it and um and those kind of things so it's really i like working in really small bite-sized chunks yeah that's that's really good that's really good so do you uh so is it all then does it are they initiating then the the video? They're sending you the video clip when they're ready to send you something of them playing, and then basically you're assessing that and then giving them feedback and guiding them based on what you viewed in the video. Exactly. Answering questions that they have, helping them work through things they're challenged, or if they play something and they do something wrong, pointing it out and talking through that. The, you know, I was listening to your, um, your interview with the guy who's working with you, um, is it Henry? Who wrote all the no, books? Uh, uh, um, oh, Dan Hurley. Yeah, Dan Hurley. Thank you. My brain is Dan Hurley. Fried. Yes. From I was listening yes, to your interview right. there, and he was talking about you know, like you really can't teach jazz. You have to do jazz and and learn it yourself. But you can use a teacher as a way to kind of encourage this, discourage this, point you in this direction. Hey, have you thought about this? That kind of stuff. So that's really the approach that I'm doing. I'm not working very much with very absolute beginner jazz players. There are people that are just, hey, I'm playing with this tune. It sounds the same way every time I play it. What other things could I do? What new technique could I add in here? And how do I play with that? Yeah. So what are the biggest struggles that you're finding students are having that based on your experience and what you're witnessing through these videos, what, what's the biggest challenges that they're, they're experiencing? Inefficient practice. Okay. Practicing yeah. things that are too big or too hard for them and thinking that I can just put my head down and grind through it. Um, right. Yeah. Like, again, if you want to sit down and go through all your rootless voicings, but you don't know your three note voicings yet, I mean, it's just going to be painful and, well, and, not, and not sticky. And I see so many people that are jumping ahead trying to learn things that are too difficult for them. Yeah, and it's probably something that they've heard about through, you know, you know, poking around online, you know, maybe through YouTube or, you know, some, some method book or something. And they thought, well, yeah, that sounds good, so i gotta, I got to start tackling that. But the progressions that I teach are minute. They're almost laughable how small they are. I'm like, okay, well, when you're going from one chord to the next, try doing to go to the third note, right? Okay, now play, pick up um, Ain't Misbehaving and do that between every chord change. Figure out how to go to the third of the next chord. Now that's absurd and it sounds right. terrible, but you've now built the muscle into your hand to learn how to do that framing. Then you go into, right. well, let's look at enclosures and chromatic enclosures and, and those things. Right. And you start to get into what I really, really love and what really woke me up was Barry Harris's methods of teaching, which are, again, all built on really, really small building blocks that you ingrain in yourself one at a time. And um, right. just trying to move too fast, I would say, is the biggest mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, students want to move too fast. Um, they want to, this sounds crazy, but they want to play songs. And who doesn't, right? This is what, when you go to study music, you think, I'm going to go learn an instrument and I'm going to play songs. But I always say, well, this I tell my students, I'm going to teach you how to play thousands of songs. I'm not going to teach you to play a song. I'm going to teach you how to play thousands of songs. And, you know, that's hence where the name jazz piano skills comes from, because there's a set of skills that you have to have a command of. And if you get a command of those skills, then your playing and performing journey has begun. And, um, and you, can't, you cannot I mean, skip over that. You have to practice playing songs. I mean, of course. I, I know you're not saying otherwise, right. but you're what you call paper practice that I've heard you talk about so many times. Right. I mean, it's important. Right. You have to have really focused practice on one particular technique and you know, really woodshed it out and then apply it to tunes right away um, in order yes. to make it stick. Well, and you have to, you have to, you know, too, I, I tell students they have to keep moving. You know, like I, I always tell the story of a student that I have uh, he's an engineer, great guy, and uh, he says to me, he comes in, he makes an announcement in a lesson one day, he says, uh, Bob, he says, I'm going to, um, I've decided I'm going to practice in the key of C until I get C down, until I really feel I have mastery of the key of C before I go on to the next key. And 
and I said to him, and his name happened to be Bob too. And I said, Bob, uh, I'm going to just tell you right now, you're going to be in C for the rest of your life. Bro. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, yeah, man. I said, you know, if you want to get good at C, I said, you need to practice in the key of F. And if you want to get good in the key of F, practice in the key of B flat. And if you want to get good in B flat, practice in the key of E flat. And that the point I was making to him is that, man, dude, you got you to gotta be cycling through the data. You got to be constantly cycling through the data. Uh, and when you cycle through the data, don't make the mistake. When you go on to practice in the key of F, don't start tomorrow. When you start the key of F tomorrow, don't start with this mindset. Well, wait a minute. Let me see how much I remember in the key of C before I go on to F. Because C was yesterday. C was yesterday. You're, you're practicing F today. So don't make that mistake because then you get sucked back in the C again. So I'm always encouraging students that you got to be cycling through the data. You have to, for every single practice session, you have to have a single practice objective. What is the objective? What, what is it that you're practicing? Why are you practicing it? How are you practicing it? And then that's your plan. And if, and if you haven't decided that before you sit down on the bench, it's too late. It's too late because you're going to be you're going to be grazing. You're going to be roaming around, practicing a whole bunch of things. And I think I, I think that's touching upon what you're getting at. This with you know trying to do too much, trying to do move too quickly, um, can get you can get you can actually create the stagnation. Yeah, I'm curious if you disagree with me on this part though, um, because. I think you have to apply these new techniques that you're learning to tunes right from the beginning. And your point about learning to play in the key of C is great. It's, but as soon as you think about, well, what song are you going to play? What jazz standard are you going to play that's in the key of C? Because they all have two five ones that modulate every three bars to some other key. And you got to, you, you can't play a jazz standard in the key of C. I Correct. Guess. Right. Right. You, it's just not, it, it's not a real tune. Right. So I like to take one little technique, practice the heck out of that teak so that it's comfortable in my fingers. But through that, you have to apply it to songs at the same time. You have to practice both the technique in isolation and in the application of tunes. So if you're learning your block chords with your diminished movements in between them, any tune that has a scale movement in it, you should be throwing those movements in place just to really nail them and learn them in all the keys and, and get them in practice yeah. musically, not just in your fingers technically. Yeah, I think, I think you need to apply um, scale sets to... I think I think it begins the way I always like to teach and the way I like to practice. I like to isolate first. I isolate technique based on sound. So if I'm if I'm working on a specific technique, I'm going to apply it to a minor sound or I'm going to apply it to a dominant sound. Everything everything for me in music is sound based. So it's always is it minor? Is it half diminished? Is it diminished? Is it dominant? What is, what what is the sound? And then what what technical skill am I applying to that sound? And then I practice that technique to that sound, and then then I move from from one sound to multiple sounds. In other words, a progression, a two five one or a one six two five one, some kind of harmonic motion that we know all these songs are made up of these harmonic motion. So uh, so I I always work from isolation. Uh, isolation of a sound, then harmonic motion, incorporating harmonic motion of a sound, and then finally to a tune. Um, you know, because because these tunes, you know, I always tell this story, too. I remember an old jazzer when I was growing up. I was maybe about 14, 15, maybe 16, somewhere in there. And he, this jazz guy could play any tune, any key, uh, any time. And I was always amazed at that. And I can remember I asked him one time, I said, uh, his name was Warren. And I said, Warren, uh, how is it that you know so many, so many songs? And he looked at me as if I asked him the dumbest question on the face of planet Earth with great confusion on his face. And uh, he took his little cigar out of his mouth and he said, he blew the smoke. He said, what are you talking about, Bob? He said, they're all the same. And I went, what the heck is this kooky guy talking about? They're not all the same, you know? Misty's not the same as Satin Dial. Satin Dial's not the same as Confirmation. Confirmation's not the same as The Night in Tunisia. I mean, these are all very different songs. What's he talking about? Well, then, you know, now 45 years later, I know exactly what he's talking about because the depth of his, his musical understanding was that 
all these songs have the same types of harmonic motion. Twos going to fives, going to ones, going to sixes, going to flat sixes, going to flat twos. And after you play those enough times, you, you know, it's like how many times do you have to hear a dog bark before you recognize that it's a dog barking, right? How many times do you have to hear a two, five, one before you realize, hey, that's a two, five, one. So why I like to practice, I go to harmonic motion, common motion that is found within all these tunes because it's setting them up to uh, be able to play thousands of tunes because they're going to be recognizing these same patterns that exist from song to song to song to song. Um, and then on top of that, the ear training goes skyrockets. You know, So I, I agree with you. Eventually it's got to get to a tune, but the way I work, I go isolation to progression, then to tune. Oh, we're on the same page. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's... As it's, long as you aren't and, learning the technique for this one section of this one tune, and then you don't oh, use that totally. technique anywhere else, right? It's Oh, my gosh. I, I, de I definitely agree with that, right? Because I, I tell students, you can't do... You, what do you think? You're going to drop kick that into a song? You know, like, you're going to be successful just drop kicking that in somewhere? I mean, that just doesn't really work. It doesn't really work that way. Again, like my example earlier, anywhere you have scale motion... One of your available tools to you would be this block chord with the diminished movements and right. stuff inside it. And you've got right. to be able to do that on any tune that's got scale motion in it. Right. Um, how do you encourage students to use technology in their development and study? Or do you? I don't, actually, all that much. So, um, like, I, I keep a practice journal that is as low-tech as possible. You've seen yeah, it on old. my... You've yeah, seen yeah, it on yeah, my... Yeah, that's all... <laughs> on my website. That's old school. I like it, man. That's old school. And I'm all, I love old school. Yeah. Sorry. See, I'll, I'll, use... I come from a tech company, right? I was a software programmer. So I want to invent software to fix all of my problems. But what I found for me was that nothing was more, <laughs> nothing was a greater procrastinator to keep me from practicing than getting lost in some technology setup. So I have some like spreadsheet, like things that I use for tracking my practice in addition to my journal. But no, the, the practice is at the, at the piano. So the tech, the technical yeah. tools that I use are what uh, keyboard VST am I playing from and what sounds am I using right. and that stuff. It's, right. it's all about the creativity of it, not the teaching methods. Yeah. Do you, do you use anything like uh, iReal Pro, Band in the Box, uh, GarageBand, you know, yeah, I'm a that Logic Pro, kind of real so Logic Pro is my music production stuff, but I use iReal Pro to practice and jam along with. Actually, this is a, a fun tip if anybody's really nerdy about um, music production. You can export the iReal Pro files as MIDI files, import them into Logic and put real instrumentation and run them through humanizing algorithms and actually make wow. them sound a million times better. And I use that when I'm out, I go out and play at hospitals and stuff like that and I want to play with a backing track. I don't open the cheesy iReal Pro backing tracks, but I've Correct. created ones that sound much better actually using iReal Pro as a starting point. But no, yeah. those are great well, techniques. I mean, we, we, I right. think we talked about this when you joined me on, on my show a few months ago. Back when Red Garland wanted to play with his trio and wanted to practice, like he had to get all those guys together in a warehouse somewhere right. and practice. And now we can just like sit down at two a.m. and turn on the iPad and iReal Pro and go. Well, and and that's why you know a lot of times I hear jazz musicians knock like the technology like iReal Pro, and I'm going like, come on, man, that's that's a fantastic practice tool because it it's sim it's like a flight simulator for airline pilots, right? You know. In the old days, the only way that we could test our skills with our development of time and feel and articulation was to go to the jam session. And, and quite honestly, there's a lot of embarrassing moments at jam sessions, <laughs> and, and, that, and that's the only way that you would be able to cut your teeth. But, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I love the jam session. I think that's fantastic. However, for us to be able to practice in the confines of our home, and to have a the the a, you know a musical metronome, if you will, a musical metronome that's keeping time and allows us to place the musical concepts that we're we're practicing to place them into a context, a musical setting, a musical context, even if it is cheesy. If people right, it's you, know, you got to listen beyond that. You got to hear beyond that, and and uh, and drop your skills in the time because. I think that's the hardest thing that all jazz musicians have to develop, their, their sense of time, their sense of feel, their articulation. And, and I tell students all the time, man, I can't teach you that. No teacher can teach you that. You have to experience that to develop that.
And I, I think that's what Dan Hurley was probably getting at when, when he was on Jazz Piano Skills talking about that. Yeah. And I think iReal Pro, I think iReal Pro allows us to do that, right? Oh, absolutely! It gives you a gives you a um, if nothing if it does nothing but create a better metronome for you, then it's worth it. But it can do so much it's, more. It, and I like how you said that. It's it's a lot better metronome, a big time, a lot better metronome. Yeah, it's a metronome uh, you can learn to play bossa nova against. I mean, try doing that against the square metronome. <laughs> right. So um, I want you to go back. You mentioned Barry Harris uh, a little earlier. So talk to talk to the Jazz Piano Skills listeners about the influence that Barry Harris and his teachings have had on your, your playing and your approach to teaching as well. You know, for people who know who Barry is in his studies, they know what a legend that he is. He's an right. absolute, right. amazing, incredibly gifted player and should be recognized for all time for his talents as a player. But right. he's going to go down in history as being the great jazz educator. Um, there, there, yeah. Nobody will ever replace that um, seat that he's, hold, he's held. And there are a lot of people who know a lot more about Barry than I do. He used to run a, a weekly workshop in New York City that anybody could show up and pay five bucks or something to and just sit there for three hours and learn from from the guy who, you know, that's, that's amazing. It's it's incredible. Five bucks, um, and you could go in. And I never had the privilege and of was, sitting. And the, yeah, and there was probably somebody complaining about that too, right? Five bucks? Are you kidding me, man? You know, my friend Chris Parks was was kind of his driver and uh-huh. studied with him for for I think twenty years, and used to take him to all these different gigs and stuff. And he's like, Barry, you got to raise the prices. And I think he went from nine bucks <laughs> to ten bucks one year because he, he it, it wasn't about the pursuit of a business for him it was about uh, the the, right. the musicality and the sharing yeah and right he's a tough guy a tough teacher he's a, a, a he loves everybody but man is he tough on you in terms of being a good teacher right. and so right. i never had the privilege of actually studying in person with him never going to one of those workshops i've watched every video that i can find i've read everything and Part of the problem is he never prepared anything. He would show up for these workshops with no agenda, no technique to skill, and people would show up and they would start playing and he'd be inspired and he would teach something. And so there isn't right. like a, a method book, according to Barry Harris's technique, that you can go through. You have to discover right. it for yourself. But there are right. a few... He's really well known for his six diminished concept. And people kind of know... The, the things that I've read online and the uh, like, the videos I've watched throughout Six Diminished only really scratched the surface as to how deep I think it was as a, con- of a concept to him. And when you really get into his, um, have you heard his evolution story about like chromatic became um, whole tone, which became diminished, right, became right. dominant? And I'm right. like, oh my gosh, I have to throw away all of my theory and history where you start with the major scale and then you build everything <laughs> right. by altering notes of the major scale. Like he doesn't think about that at all. But also to right. think about a guy who is a, a complete bebop legend, he doesn't think about any chords bigger than seventh chords. He doesn't play ninth right. chords or elevens or thirteens or alterations. I mean, he plays them, but he doesn't think about them that way. And you're like, well, how would you play them and not know what they are and not think about them? He doesn't play bebop scales. He's like the, the bebop god. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it was really right. a fascinating journey for me to to isolate and break those things down and start to bring those ideas into my playing. And it made it an incredible uh, difference in my own playing. And I, I, I hope that I can use my platform to share some of his ideas with people. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a big fan of that. You know, this, if learning the seventh chords and just what you're doing is, you know, Barry would not think that he was playing, you know, ninths, but if you played a E flat major seven over C minor, you're playing, you you arpeggiate E flat major seven over a C minor. You're, you're up in the upper extensions, right? You're, you're, you're playing, you're playing the nine. Let's talk E flat, G- E flat major seven. So here's Misty, according to him. When I heard him say that, I was like, whoa, what is this? So if you can't see it, it's E flat, G, B natural, and D. And then you're like, he resolves it here to a C. And you're thinking, if you're thinking about E flat major seven as being this, you're way off of what he's thinking about. Oh, correct. And, and I was like, right. what in the world? Where is that coming from? And as you explore, you learn what he's thinking about is he's got an E flat chord, which in his six diminished scale would alternate with an F or with a D diminished chord. And he's borrowing notes between right. the two. So his bottom two notes are E flat 
And the top two notes are the D diminished. And of course, he was into six chords as his building block, not seven Correct. chords. Correct. So right. he would he would right. resolve right. it to the to the six to the C. And right. I had never thought about major seventh chords as being dissonant chords until I heard him do. Uh, let's see, how does he do it? He does it like this. So it's something like this. Right. So it's major seven to six, and you're like. That's absolutely a dissonant chord. It resolves there. I'd never thought of the major seven as being a dissonant right. chord to the six. Right. And right. that, like, again, yeah. these little tiny things were just like, like, just exploded in my head of different ways you could apply yeah. these to tunes. Yeah, this mastery of tension and release, right? And there's videos, you know, listeners can go out there and, and Google, Google Barry Harris and get all kinds of videos of him explaining and, and PDFs to download. It's, it's an incredible resource. Yeah, he did an amazing series. Most of his stuff is old from the eighties or nineties that are right. recorded on old VHS right. types that are kind of hard to follow right. at times from Lay's live workshops and they're worth right. watching. But if you start the jazz at Lincoln center had the foresight to sit him down and do a high production value, free seven series, um, seven episode right. series, on YouTube, that's that's uh, really a good introduction to what he's talking about, right? But no, so, nothing okay. nothing has been more influential to me than studying the playing and his teachings and applying those sounds to tunes because it sounds so authentic in a way that just picking up the real book and playing songs. I would have never learned that on a minor chord that a minor seven chord is not a one chord. A minor seven chord is never a one chord. It's always a minor six chord. Because the minor seven wants right. to, wants to resolve down a fifth. Right, 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 right. So, okay, so... Sorry, so I'm off on a tangent now. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's awesome, man. Um, I want to go back to and touch upon uh, Jazz Library again. So, ultimately, where are you heading? What's the ultimate vision for Jazz Library down the road here? Yeah, um, the vision for the website is to be really a comprehensive source for jazz theory techniques, almost like an open source textbook um, of oh, ideas that people right. could use, right? Um, right. The, a Wikipedia kind of, of sorts of, of really comprehensive in-depth jazz knowledge as opposed to things that are just flying across the surface. And that, I hope, will encourage people to dive into more of the commercial efforts, both that I produce but that other people uh, produce to maybe go to school or study with a real teacher or buy commercial books or other programs or things like that. But if someone is sitting right. at home during a pandemic with a piano in the house, they've always wanted to learn how to play and they don't have a whole lot of money, I would love for them to open this up and have a place to start from. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, is there a, a possible jazz uh, library podcast in the future, my friend? Is you know, that, I got uh, a I got a the... whole bunch of ideas, but right now, like, <laughs> I've got to rebuild the site. I've got some YouTube videos to produce. I've got, uh, yeah, I got all the live workshops to do every week. I'm pretty overwhelmed with that, but I think in time it could be. Yeah, why not? Right? Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great um, it's a great format. I'm still trying to figure candidly how I transition out of I was an executive running a rather significant company into now being a content producer full time. It's old habits are dying hard in some ways. And so right. as I yeah. kind of get my stride and my comfort and my feet under me in that regard, I, I have lots of ideas of places to go. So, all right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a little rapid fire with you. I do this with every guest on Jazz Piano Skills. I'm just uh -oh, going to throw round. out yeah, it's a lightning round, right? So I'm just going to throw out some musical uh, uh, skills, some musical uh, concepts. Don't tell me I play Donna Lee and B flat or something. No, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, from an educate from an educated <laughs> okay. perspective, some, right. I, I want you to give I want you to give some tips based on your experience. What you would for the jazz piano skills listeners, uh, how you would. Um, uh, encourage them to think about these skills and practice these skills. So I just, you know, I'm going to start easy with you, right? Uh, scales, regardless of what type of scale, major scale, minor scales, uh, altered scales, regardless, what advice would you give jazz piano skills listeners about practicing scales? If you don't know them, like you know your wife's face, uh, you should, or your husband's face, you should practice them more. But once you do, practice them in tense, practice them in contrary motion, practice them, you know, um, 
my, our joint friend Jeremy Siskind has this thing where he puts a metronome on at like 100 beats per minute and he says, okay, play E minor and you just play eighth notes. E minor all over the place, you never stop. And you, if you miss the metronome, if you screw up, right, then right. you're out. And you've got to do that for like five minutes straight where you just play E minor with a, with a metronome at 100 beats per minute. I think that's an amazing exercise. It's very challenging, yes. Okay, so um, what about voicings? This is a this is an area where a lot of students get tripped up. How to approach and practice and study voicings. I'm going to come back to Barry Harris on this, which is probably an answer you haven't heard here from somebody else before. But his approach to voicings is so simple and yet so authentic that I would spend a lot of time mastering six voicings and his polychord concepts uh, on those. Right. right. So if you're playing a dominant chord, like a C7, you'd play a G minor six chord on top. Right, right, right. Okay, so what about, leading into that then, what about ear training? What kind of advice would you give folks? Ear training is always a big topic. You know, I have students asking, you know, how can I, how can I better train my ear to hear musical sounds, musical progressions? Well, you can do one of the really boring, you know, uh, note comparison, interval comparison tools. There are a million online that you can buy, and it's yeah, essential. Right. You have to be able to play this and sing a fifth up and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely have to do that. I love Amy Nolte's concept of point and sing, if you haven't heard that, where she she plays a reference note, and she sings a line, and she sings a continuous line, and she just checks herself as she go occasionally. So she's fingering the line that she's singing, but not playing the notes and every once in a while just hits the note to make sure she's still where she thinks she's supposed to be. And that creates the sense of, instead of singing along with your playing, playing along with your singing, and how you can become right. much more musical and think about your improvisation like you're singing a more organically right out of you instead of putting scales and techniques and arpeggios into your solos. So right. our tra ear, tra ear training to me is that, um, being able to take something that's within you and get it out through your hands. Yeah, very good. All right, what about, I know you're big on this, um, what recommendations would you give to Jazz Panel Skills listeners about transcribing, transcriptions? Boy, I have a lot of my own advice to listen to here. Um, I love transcribing <laughs> stuff. You know, you and I nerded out for a long time about Brad Maldo's Blackbird transcription. We're going to do an episode on that here soon, <laughs> okay. but yes. Um, but just because I was, the, but I think you, what you need to do is after you've transcribed it, don't transcribe it so that you can perform it. Like you don't need to wrote perform somebody else's transcriptions. What you should do is lear, look for one thing to learn out of that. From that Brad Maldow solo, I could have learned a thousand things. But the thing I learned that really stuck with me is that every one of his phrases starts at a different part of the measure. There isn't, through the entire like two minute solo, I don't think he plays any lines that start on the end of one back back with each other. It starts on the end of one. Then wow. his next one is, his first one is and of one. Uh, going up, and then his next one is three going down, and the next one is the end of two going up, and then the next one is and of four going up. There's right. so much variety about crossing the bar and breaking things down that you, when you transcribe something, you need to look for one little thing like that. And it's okay if it's only taking two bars of an Oscar Peterson solo and look at those two bars and play them and figure out what's doing and learn one little thing from that, then apply it to your tonal centers and apply it to your tunes. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I think yeah. a lot of my classical friends transcribe things so that they can sound like Oscar Peterson. They pick up the Oscar Peterson Omni book and they want to play the solos as written in there. And I'm like, you're for a bad time. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. that's that's tough. Well, you know, I heard you know Michael Brecker said that he never ever transcribed a solo from beginning to end. He he would just he he'd hear something that he'd like, and then he would transcribe that little snippet and learn from that snippet. You know, and yeah, and I think, you know, you bring up a good point, you know, you, that that's really the way to try to approach, you know, what you're going to try to extract something out of a solo that you can that you can uh, grow from. I wish I could say I hadn't spent enormous amounts of time transcribing a solo from beginning to end because it probably was a waste of time in so many ways that would have been better applied right. looking at one little phrase and transposing that right. phrase and twisting it around and right. putting it into tunes. And yeah, right. So, okay, so what advice would you give, um, you know, and I know you have experience with this because you have so many classical uh, pianists that are studying with you. What advice would you give for somebody that says, you know, I, I'm just going, what's the best way for me to start trying to learn how to improvise? What is, what's the best way? I think it's too broad a question. What, who do you, like, what style do you want to sound like? Do you want to sound like, let's say, bebop? 
You want to learn to improvise like right. Bebop. Well, you learn your arpeggios up and your scales down, and you sound like Bebop. I mean, that I'm really, really oversimplifying, right. but right? That's Bebop. Uh, scale up. Right. Uh, arpeggio up, scale down. Um, learn some of those Barry Harris um, dominant chord, dominant scale rules and things like that that he puts out. Right. Beginning right. to improvise, though, I would start with singing, um, just in general, uh, not playing. So play the chords beneath yeah. yourself, sing a solo, like say two bars of a solo, not a whole head, like two bars. Right. Stop and then play what you just sang. Um, and right. that'll help you really think about, kind of like with the ear training, come up with the, invent the idea in your head first, then apply it. And I think you'll, net, you'll find things that so many people struggle with, like how do I come up with a motif that I explore and play with over a couple rounds through the changes, come yeah. out more naturally when you're singing them or, or, or that kind of stuff. Right. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times with students with improvisation, uh, I, I think it always begins rhythmically, right? Because everybody wants to think about what notes should I be playing. And I always go like, well, okay, here's, a, here's the note you should be. Here, how about play the note C and only the note C? Now ri- improvise something rhythmically with the note C. And, 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 of course, everybody struggles with that. And so my point always is, well, you think that's going to get easier when we add two notes or three or four? <laughs> Or five? I mean, right? So the way I like to approach that improv is like, here's a note. Do something with it. Congratulations. This is improvisation, right? Listen to so, some uh, uh, Hiromi. She does these whole solos where she's on one note. It's amazing. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. Yeah, you taught um, me that about, actually on our thing. You, I, I bought a snare drum rudiments book at your recommendation. Oh, good deal. Because I would take some solo line that I thought was interesting or that I thought was boring, and then I would apply the rhythm from the snare drum rudiments book. And I was like, wow, wow, that's interesting now. It wasn't the notes, it turned out. My notes were fine. Right. And you know, it, what's interesting, you know, we always play scales with the same rhythm. Isn't that funny? We practice scales with the same rhythm instead of changing the scales rhythmically. Right. Right. There's another great exercise for students to do. Okay. What about, uh, you mentioned songs. So let's talk about repertoire. What, what is the best way, what's the best advice that you can give students to begin developing some repertoire, learning tunes? Listen to tunes, listen to the Mm. standards. So, uh, you know, the, I, I like all the new modern jazz stuff. I'm a young guy. I like the Snarky Puppies and uh, Sean yeah, Martins right. and those things. But go back to the standards because the thing that's really unique about jazz as a culture is that there's a thousand recordings of Autumn Leaves. And if you have a Spotify subscription, you can listen to all of them, right? Right. So right. You, can, you can learn to hear the variety of different things that different people have done with that. I would say from there, then you start to learn the harmonic structures you're talking about. Once you know your two five ones, you'll start to hear them inside other tunes. And you can almost play these other tunes automatically at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Once you've kind of learned, oh, I can go to the, the seven to the three to the minor six. That's just a two five one, a minor two five one in the tonic key. Once you start to hear those concepts inside the other songs, the other songs almost come out. So that's how I built my repertoire, right. was by right. learning all these harmonic structures first, listening to right. a particular tune, recognizing those things by ear, not from looking at the real book, but by ear, recognizing those harmonic sounds within the tune, and then yeah. moving on to the next one. Yeah, I I always, you know, all the old jazzers always used to say to me, man, they, they'd say, Bob, if you can't sing the song, you can't play the song. And, you know, they were really big on knowing the lyrics and listening to the vocalists sing, you know, the, mel- the melodic line, right? Being able to actually sing the melodic line, uh, starting with that. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we uh, students, we forget about that, right? I mean, we, we dig into learning a tune and we really don't know the melody. <laughs> we, we couldn't sing it, you know? You could hear it in their it's solo, like, too, if they don't know the melody. Oh, my goodness gracious, right? It, it, it jumps out, so... Well, my friend, listen, we could sit here for another, can you believe it? We've done this now and we've been sitting here chatting for an hour, man. Wow. It's hard to believe. So uh, we could we could do this for another three hours, no doubt. But I cannot begin to thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to join me uh, and uh, introducing you to the Jazz Piano Skills listeners and the Jazz Piano Skills community. So on behalf of all the Jazz Piano Skills uh, listeners out there, thank you, Josh. Thank you for taking time and, and spending time with us today. That's really been an honor. You're at the top of my podcast subscription list, so I listen to you every week. So Man. I'm Man. honored to be oh, that's here. Awesome. Awesome. I, I appreciate it. Yes. And and you know what? This is just the first of many, man. We we gotta have you back on uh because we got a whole lot more stuff to talk about. Uh 
So uh, we will we will plan that for a future date as well. Sounds All great. Right? All right, Josh. Thanks so much, um, jazz pianos. Oh, hey, before we do that, where can they can jazzlibrary dot com right? Jazz hyphen social- library. Jazz hyphen library dot com. Yeah, you can find and me on Twitter social- on jazz library. Twitter, the same place. The- fantastic. Yep. And then this uh, this podcast episode will not it will be available not only audio format but it will be uh, available video format as well at uh, the Jazz Piano Skills YouTube channel. So everybody check that out. So awesome, Josh. Thank you again, my friend. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. I hope you have found this Jazz Piano Skills podcast with special guest Josh Walsh to be insightful, and of course to be very beneficial. One of my favorite mentors and teachers of all time, Al Franzen, used to say to me after every lesson, never forget, the greatest thing about music is the people you meet through it. And the privilege of knowing Josh simply confirms Al's sentiment 100%. Don't forget, if you are a Jazz Panel Skills member, I will see you online Thursday evening at the Jazz Panel Skills Masterclass, 8 p.m. Central Time to discuss this podcast episode featuring Josh Walsh in greater detail and to answer any questions that you may have about the study of jazz. As always, you can reach me by phone, 972-380-8050. My office extension is 211. By email, drlawrence, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com or by speakpipe found throughout the Jazz Piano Skills website. Well, there's my cue. That's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the pearls of wisdom shared by Josh Walsh. And most of all, have fun as you discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Jazz Piano.